Good morning. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here this rainy Halloween. Uh, happy Halloween to you. Happy Reformation Day to you. How about that? Uh, looks like the, the rain is going to blow out of the state by around four or five. The, the further west in the state, the later it's going to be. But they're saying now the rain should be done by about six. So you'll still have some trick or treating time with your kids, hopefully. Um, and be able to get out there. Also, just so you know, uh, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan is going to join me at 10 o'clock, Georgia's Lieutenant Governor, to talk about his plans to help save the Senate. Uh, looking forward to being able to chat with him. We got a lot to cover this morning, uh, just now in the first hour. Uh, I, I I know a lot of people are buzzing about impeachment, and Real Clear Politics has the name of who they think the whistleblower is. It is a partisan Democrat. I, I don't know that it actually is that person, and so I want to tread carefully on... Uh, on revealing the person, adding the person, what have you. I, I, I do want to be careful in that regard. And so I, I won't delve deep other than to tell you it looks credible. And the person is very much a partisan Democrat. I, I want to start somewhere else, though, because I think this should be the big story of the day. And, and you know, there are so many different stories out there. It's like Doug the dog and squirrel where they're, they're just darting every which way squirrel. Uh, <laughs> um, there are so many stories to keep track of right now. And life does go on. The president is on the campaign trail. Um, the, the media is losing their mind over the Ben Shapiro Photoshop of the dog, which is just crazy. Um, I, but I, I want to start here. This I think is one of the most monumentally important things that have happened uh, in really campaign politics this year. It is the ad from the president. It aired last night uh, during the World Series, Game 7 of the World Series, all of Washington, and that's the key here, all of Washington was watching. They, they wanted to watch the Nationals in their World Series. The Nationals wound up winning. Listen to this ad. If I can reroute the sound, what a buildup, and then I mess up the sound. Huh? Here we go. President Trump is changing Washington, creating 6 million new jobs, 500,000 new manufacturing jobs, cutting illegal immigration in half, obliterating ISIS, their caliphate destroyed, their terrorist leader dead. But the Democrats would rather focus on impeachment and phony investigations, ignoring the real issues. But that's not stopping Donald Trump. He's no Mr. Nice Guy, but sometimes it takes a Donald Trump to change Washington. I'm Donald Trump, and I approve this message. He's no Mr. Nice Guy, but sometimes it takes a Donald Trump to change Washington. I think that's going to be the campaign message for the Republicans in 2020, that a lot of people don't like the president, but he's changing Washington, and he's getting the job done. And and I, I suspect that's going to be a significant issue. I suspect that's going to be an issue that uh, resonates with certain people. I, I suspect that's an issue that is going to matter next year because polls show a lot of people don't like the president and they may not like the president, but if he's getting the job done, the economy's going good, uh, they may stick with him. But there, there are bigger issues at play here. And this is the reason I start the show with it. And, and you know, when I sit down in the mornings, 
I try to do an outline of what do I want to talk about? What do I think are the big stories? I know I've got three hours, and I typically wait to get into Georgia news during the second hour. Uh, some stations don't pick up the show until the second hour. I want to make sure everybody's on board in Georgia before, for example, the lieutenant governor of Georgia comes on. Uh, but there are things you need to know out of the gate this morning. And the reason I highlight the commercial first are a couple of things. One, no president or other candidate running for president has ever run an ad this early for a general election, let alone during the World Series. Democratic spin this morning is that the president must be desperate. That's that's not it at all. That is reading the president's actions through Trump derangement syndrome. And I, I wonder if we're going to see more of this. Or we're going to see miscalculations by both sides in the next year because of Trump derangement syndrome. That um, there are going to be people who they, they can't see the forest for the trees for the president. They can't give him honest advice because everything he does is golden. Sometimes he needs honest correction and they can't give it to him because they don't see it. At the same time, we will see other people uh not be able to honestly assess what's happening because they hate the president so much. They just can't get a clear eyed picture of what's going on. And and this I think is one of the cases here with this ad this morning or overnight last night during the world series. There are a lot of Democrats saying he must be desperate. He must be desperate. He's running campaign ads this early during the world series when people are watching, he must be desperate. He's seen his poll numbers. That's, that's not it at all. Donald Trump is running an ad during the World Series when who is watching? Texas and Washington. The Astros and the Expos. And he's got a captured audience of Washington senators there and congressmen who are engaged in impeachment. He's got half the Washington bureaucracy watching. And then he's got people rooting for the Astros out in flyover country. And what a juxtaposition. This sends a couple of signals. Uh, There will be the vote later today on impeachment in the House of Representatives to begin formal impeachment. There's no doubt the Democrats have the votes. The Democrats have the votes to proceed with impeachment. The question is, how many Democrats do they lose versus how many Republicans do they gain? And the going wisdom right now in Washington, D.C. is that the Democrats will actually lose more votes than they will gain by defective, defecting defective Republicans. Uh, the Republicans have 19 members of the House of Representatives who are leaving. Many of them do not like President Trump. Many of them are privately concerned with what they're hearing about the president's behavior. Some of them are trying to rationalize it as he's, he's not an expert. He's too new. He's a novice. Um, He's out of his depth. He relies on others. They gave him bad advice. Uh, Some of them actually may want to vote. I would keep my eye on Will Hurd from Texas, who's leaving, who's on the Intelligence Committee, who was in the CIA, who doesn't care for the president, who is leaving in large part because the president has made his district Democratic leaning. Uh, See what he does. But there are Democrats. There are Democrats, even in New England. There are Democrats. Or Lucy McBath here in Georgia. What does she do? Does she vote for impeachment? Does she take a walk? How many of the Democrats take a walk? They, they don't want to vote for it. They don't want to vote against it. They would prefer to vote against it. They don't want to defy House leaders or progressives. They don't want a progressive challenge. Do they take a walk? So the president's dropping a TV ad, and I, you'll have to forgive me. I, I don't mean to offend, uh, but I, I ref, if you go to the resurgent.com this morning, I've got a piece up where I, I say this is FU money. 
The president is spending this money daring Republican senators to challenge him. He's daring Republican senators to come after him. He's got the money to spend in their states to ruin them. This is the president spending money looking at these swing state Democrats saying, I I dare you. The Democrats are looking at the Republican National Committee and some of these House and Senate campaigns and the NRSC, the National Republican Senatorial Committee, and the National Republican Congressional Committee, the NRCC, and they're behind their Democratic counterparts. Uh, The prevailing wisdom is the Republicans won't take back the House of Representatives, and the president is spending money in these swing districts saying, I dare you to defy me. You Republicans who are defying me, I'll make sure you never take back the House of Representatives. You Democrats in swing districts who come after me, I'll make sure the Republicans come after you. See, this is one of the things here. The the Republicans are behind in fundraising. This is objectively true. But the president is ahead in fundraising. And if the president can get some coattails on him, the amount of fundraising by the Senate and the House doesn't matter as much. Everyone already knows that the Republicans in Congress are going to be joined at the hip with the president. If he goes down, they go down. But if he goes up, they go up. That's one of the issues here in Georgia. We'll get into the the voter suppression story that's out there, the the voters being perched from the rolls. It's being badly reported in the media. These 313,000 people who will be taken off the rolls, uh, nothing but spin from the media on this. But we know for certain that Republican turnout in Georgia is about 200,000 people more during a presidential election year than in a midterm election. And we know, we have the data to show it, that Republicans in 2018, they turned out on a midterm level and Democrats stayed enraged and engaged. You know, they had a day of outrage in Atlanta on Monday. The the Democrats are are doing this. They're trying to keep people outraged. They're trying to stir the pot. They're trying to keep people incensed. And to some degree, I think this plays into that Ben Shapiro story. I I, I want to spend a little more time on it here, but just in a nutshell, uh, Ben Shapiro's website, The Daily Wire, photoshopped the president giving the dog who went after Baghdadi the Medal of Honor. And you can even see the medal has a paw print instead of a real uh, Medal of Honor symbol. And the media went nuts. The, the spin is that, so the president retweeted the Daily Wire's picture, and you can see the, the, the watermark that it's from the Daily Wire, and the media went nuts over it. The New York Times did an entire story, that this, 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 this is a fake, it's fake, it's fake. Jim Acosta said, I have confirmed the dog is not in the White House. A reporter for Voice of America, I've inquired into the White House as to whether or not the dog was escorted in without the media being seen. This picture appears appears to be fake. I'm asking the White House for confirmation. Did you not see the watermark from the Daily Wire? I mean, the media proving their buffoonery and their partisanship by going after the president for this picture from Ben Shapiro. Uh, Shapiro is on social media right now on Twitter. He, he's put out a, a link to the piece and uh, a, a response from the Washington Post. The Washington Post that called Baghdadi on an austere religious cleric in their obituary in the headline is reaching out to a real Daily Wire, the Daily Wire website and Ben Shapiro wanting to know why they photoshopped this. Was this really a Photoshop? How did they obtain the picture? Why did they do this? Aren't they disrespecting the actual Medal of Honor winner that they photoshopped the dog's head on top of? They're actually doing this. The media is actually doing this. They are out to get the president. CNN actually has a piece today 
from a legal analyst saying they shouldn't stop at the president. They need to get rid of Pence too. Let Nancy Pelosi be president. The game is on. They're exposing themselves. That They're daring to say in public the things they're only supposed to whisper in private. It's like Beto O'Rourke and the tax-exempt status for churches and religious organizations. Uh, they don't want to ask the Democrats about that. Notice how they're willing to ask the Democrats about taking guns away because everyone in the media thinks that's actually a, a campaign thing that can win. You know, this is one of the things that every town USA did is they ran ads after the election and they pushed talking points after the election that it was guns. It was guns persuaded the soccer moms in the suburbs to go against the president. The soccer moms, they want the gun regulations and we may be able to do it now. We helped all of the Democrats get elected who wanted to push gun control. And look, we won. It was all us. It was all us. Pay no attention to all the other polling. It was all. And of course, the media is like, yeah, heck yeah. We've been working our butts off for a decade trying to get rid of guns. Sure. Let's say it's all it's the gun agenda. That's what happened. That That's why the Republicans did bad. They hated the president and they want gun control. The media loves this talking point and they're willing to rush out to all the other Democrats. Aren't you willing to stand up with Beto O'Rourke and confiscate people's guns out of their hands and nuke them? I mean, that's one of the actual talking points from people on the left now is uh, you can say your guns can be used against the federal government. The federal government has nukes. Yes, they will vaporize you if you try to keep your guns. And the media is okay with that, but the media understands we can't go taking taxes and status away from churches. The Pew poll still shows a majority of Americans go to church. We can't do that right now. Now is not the time. We better not highlight this issue. We better not ask the Democrats. Isn't it an interesting juxtaposition how they ask all of the Democrats about the Beto O'Rourke gun confiscation stuff, but they haven't asked a single one whether they agree with him on tax exe- taking taxes and status away from religious organizations because they know it would be politically damaging. They've convinced themselves gun control is not. And this goes full circle to the video. They've convinced themselves that the president releasing his ad during the World Series is a sign that the president is weak and he's trying to build his favorability right now. And that is not why he's doing it. The president does not care about his favorability. And you can hear that in the ad. Let me play the ad one more time uh, so that you can understand. He doesn't care about whether people like him or not. He cares about President Trump is changing Washington, creating 6 million new jobs, 500,000 new manufacturing jobs, cutting illegal immigration in half, obliterating ISIS, their caliphate destroyed, their terrorist leader dead. But the Democrats would rather focus on impeachment and phony investigation investigations, ignoring the real issues. But that's not stopping Donald Trump. He's no Mr. Nice Guy, but sometimes it takes a Donald Trump to change Washington. I'm Donald Trump, and I approve this message. President, he's no Mr. Nice Guy, but sometimes it takes a Donald Trump to change Washington. They don't care about his popularity. This isn't an, an early warning sign that the president is, is nervous or upset. This is the media believing their own spin and their own Trump derangement syndrome. This is the president spending a few money telling Democrats and Republicans he's got the money they don't have. He can define Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren before they can define themselves. He can define himself without the media interfering. He can get around the media's negativity by running these ads and targeting people. The president doesn't care. And it's driving Washington insane. 
I'm here. I'm here. I, I'm so I'm being told if you're if you're one of the let's see right now it looks like there are 92 people on Facebook Live. Uh, maybe I I need to figure out how to do Facebook Live, YouTube, and Twitter together. I think there are some ways to do that. But I've been broadcasting the show on Facebook Live, and hi to those of you who are on Facebook Live, and. There's apparently a bell, I'm told, where you can click it and you'll get notifications when the show is live. I mean, the show is live 9 to noon every weekday. You should be here. We'll even be bringing you content uh, for the holidays. I'm going to do a special Christmas show. Uh, you know, on my regular radio show, or a regular, this is now my regular radio show, my other radio show, I guess I should say, uh, I do every year a Good Friday and a Christmas show. And, you know, it started with the Good Friday show. It just, just as, as a random aside here, um, I, when I started on radio, I had never worked anywhere where you had to work on Good Friday. And I told them, if I'm going to work on Good Friday, I'm going to do a show about Good Friday. It actually is. You ask uh, atheist historian, just to be clear here, because my, my, my daughter used to get confused when she was little. Good Friday is the day Jesus died on the cross. Black Friday is the day the stores open early after Thanksgiving to shop. She, she used to think Good Friday was the shopping day and Black Friday was the Jesus died day. No, 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 no. But Good Friday. Uh, <laughs> she really did. Um, <laughs> I, I, I decided, you know, you ask atheist historians, even atheist historians, people who don't believe in, in God, and they put Good Friday up there, uh, many of them, as the num most important day in human history. Uh, and, and the reason they do is because whether you, whether you believe or not, there, there's really no historic dispute. This guy, uh, Jesus lived and died and it, the, the effects have rippled through history pretty profoundly in Western civilization. And now actually even in Eastern civilization, when you see what's happening in China and Southeast Asia. Uh, and I, I just thought, you know, uh, this is the anniversary of it. I'm going to do a whole show dedicated to the most important event in human history. And, uh, the management at my radio station, well, in, in the immediate office, we're okay with it but in the upper echelon hated the idea i am told uh and suggested that it was too much i should never do it again and then got into the office on monday and and voicemails were full of people praising the station for having let me do that and now they make me do it every year and now they make me do a christmas one every year too uh and so i, I will be doing that for us this year here too as well as you know there are a lot of local groups in georgia that play good uh, holiday music and, and I try to weave those in as well anyway that just random aside here um, but the show is here every day if you're on Facebook you can click the little bell that allegedly is there that tells you uh, when I've actually cl clicked the live stream now I want to get back to this the stupid dog photo okay so uh, the president gave the Medal of Honor to a veteran older gentleman I, I forget exactly his name uh, and the Daily Wire Ben Shapiro's website took that um, photo and photoshopped out the veteran and put in the the dog uh, the that actually chased Baghdadi into the tunnels and was injured when he was blown up. And the media is having a genuine meltdown at the president for retweeting Ben Shapiro's picture. The president retweeted the picture. You can go to the uh, resurgent.com right now. You can see the whole thread. I've got up even some of the reporters' reactions here. The president tweeted it out and said, American hero. Uh, reporters went nuts. Uh, Steve Herman from Voice of America. This is his actual tweet. 
I've requested details from the White House on this photo. There was no such canine event on today's POTUS schedule, but there is a Medal of Honor ceremony set here for later today for an active duty Green Beret. I kid you not. That was his actual tweet. And you know, if you actually look at the Medal of Honor, they photoshopped in a paw for the seal for the medal. There's a there's a dog paw. Um, Jim Acosta, a White House official, said the dog is not in the White House. And the New York Times, President Trump on Wednesday shared a photo from 2017 altered to show him placing a medal around the neck of the dog injured in the raid that led to the death of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the Islamic State leader. The photo the president shared appears to be an altered photo. I kid you not. These people have lost their minds over the president. It's going to be hard to figure out what's true when they hate him so much. It is Eric Erickson here. Welcome back at the top of the hour. Georgia Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan is going to join me to talk about his efforts to uh, save the Georgia Senate fundraising efforts there. Uh, I, I got a question. If if Has anybody changed their mind about president trump since 2016 i'm one of the few that i know in fact i know more people who have decided they're going to vote for the president in 2020 who didn't vote for him in 2016 than i know people who aren't going to vote for him now who voted for him then the reason i ask you is is actually pretty uh it's it's for a precise reason President Trump in 2016 won his election with 70,000 votes. And now he lost the popular vote to be sure, but he the Electoral College is what matters, and he won with 70,000 votes uh, between Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Those voters put him across the finish line. Uh, and when we look in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania in 2018, we see a decisive shift to the Democrats. And in fact, we see right now the polling shows the president is is behind in those states, although improving his position to some degree, but he is behind. So was George W. Bush in 2004 in a number of states. He had won in 2000, uh, and he went on to win in 2004. You, you know, the, going back to the president's ad, one of the other issues here is John Kerry 2.0. If you'll recall, in 2004, uh, John Kerry was ahead of George W. Bush pretty significantly and uh, blew it as George W. Bush spent a bunch of money to define John Kerry. Incumbency has its advantages. Democrats are worried about that here. They're seeing Joe Biden decline in some states. and, and But uh, there is this thing where the president only won by 70,000 votes. And those three states, Wisconsin, Michigan, and and Pennsylvania, shifted pretty dramatically towards the president. But, you know, um, Minnesota is shifting towards Donald Trump. And I I guess my, my issue here is we need to keep our eye on what's happening on the ground as opposed to what's happening in Washington. With so much focus on impeachment, you, you get the sense that that all of America is against Donald Trump, and that's not really true. And it's harder and harder, actually, if we're honest about it, it's actually harder now to try to figure out what's happening uh, because we are all of us, every single one of us is to some degree inside a bubble of our friends and family. We, we are increasingly isolated on this front. Um, but the president keeps having just gifts handed to him. Like, for example, um, the Arizona Democratic Party chair at a Democratic Party event had this to say about the president. Another reason why people are going to vote? Because Donald Trump is manipulating the White House and has aligned himself with ISIS 
and Saudi Arabia. I take. I, I have to say yeah. that that is just not say, true. But just that is let not me true. Say that <laughs> the just, most yeah. important thing that we can do Word. today is vote for civility. Vote for a president who's not going to align himself with the most dangerous foreign nations that are the reason why we are, had 9/11. This is the Democratic Party chair in Arizona a state the Democrats would like to pick up after the president has killed the leader of ISIS saying the president is allied with ISIS. These people have lost their mind. Another reason why people are going to vote because Donald Trump is manipulating the White House and has aligned himself with ISIS He's manipulating the White House, the, the president of the United States. He lives in the White House. If the president j- jiggles the doorknob, he's, he's manipulating part of the White House. Of, of, this is, it, it's his White House. He's allied or aligned with ISIS. This, this is kookiness. This is bat poop crazy kookiness from the Democratic Party chair in Arizona, a state the Democrats think might be a pickup state for them in 2020. Events matter. I say this all the time, uh, and I, I'm. I, it is soapbox time for Eric Erickson. I may turn on my camera here beyond the Facebook Live and record this because I can feel a tirade coming. Well, actually, a, a, a dissertation, if you will. Events matter. Events have always mattered. If you go back to 1969, shortly after Richard Nixon was elected, the media began running stories that demography matters and the Republicans would not long win. Richard Nixon was able to sweep in 1968 and then again in 19 or in 1972 before the Watergate fallout. And reporters began pushing the story that it was only a matter of time The number of black people in the United States was rising. Urban whites were becoming more and more liberal. The Republican days were numbered. Jimmy Carter happened in the media. Aha, see, we told you. Demography matters. Well, it turns out events matter more than demography. And you can see this from the election of Rudy Giuliani in New York City, where he was able to win re-election, a Republican in a city of a bunch of progressive Democrats, because he made the city safe again for people to be able to walk around. People realized that uh, crime mattered and Rudy Giuliani made the crime go away. Events mattered more than demography in New York City. We'd gone through the messiness of Watergate, the collapse of the Republican Party, the, the virtual wipeout of the Republican Party, the election of Jimmy Carter, and then gas lines and the Iran hostage crisis, and events mattered. And Ronald Reagan became president. And in 1984, it was morning again in America. The economy had rebounded. The president had made the nation strong. People decided they agreed with him. There was progress with the Soviet Union. We weren't all going to die in a nuclear fallout. And he swept the nation, save for Minnesota and Washington, D.C. Events mattered. George H.W. Bush ran for president for Reagan's third term, helped oversee the fall of the Soviet Union, the collapse of the Berlin Wall, and victory in Iraq. His popularity approval went up to 90%, and none of the Democrats wanted to run against him. Mario Cuomo, the chosen man to run for the Democrats, said, nope, not me. I'm not going to lose to this guy. And then the economy collapsed, and voters decided he's a great man, but he's out of touch with our lives. Events mattered. In 2000, 
There was a contentious race. George W. Bush became president, and the media was helpful to say, only one other time has a nation's president been elected by losing the popular vote but winning the Electoral College, and he was a one-term president. Hold your breath and be patient, people. Demography matters. And then the World Tower, World Trade Center collapsed, and we went to war. Events mattered more than demography. Barack Obama got elected in 2008, and he was like, this is it, this is it, finally going all the way back to the 60s, this is it. Demography matters, black and Hispanic voters voting overwhelmingly for Barack Obama, and then 2010 happened, events mattered. Obamacare mattered. He won re-election in 2012, but you know what happened in 2016? Donald Trump won. Oh, but, 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 but they tell us, but, but Republicans keep losing, losing the popular vote. Eventually this is going to hurt a, yeah, except people are leaving the states that helped uh, Hillary Clinton and the population is shifting. And you know, the people moving to Texas from California are actually more conservative than the native born Texans these days. Oh, and wait, what happened in 2018 in Florida, the state, the non-Cuban Hispanic voters who were reliably supposed to be Democrats because demography matters, they voted Republican because events mattered. Events matter. We could start the formal open impeachment processes and discover that the president of the United States was running the White House like a mafia operation and shaking down foreign governments for his political reelection, and he will be wiped out. Evangelical voters who love him will turn on him. They will stay home. Or we could find out this is absolutely a nothing burger, as so many people suspect, and that'll blow up in the Democrats' face. The event will matter. How it plays out will matter. And if the Democrats impeach and we get to the Senate and the Senate decides that they're not going to impeach in January, you know what? By November, we will be two billion news cycles removed from the the impeachment and events will have mattered. This nation's future is only charted on demography if we let it be charted on demography. And there's plenty of data that the demographics within the Hispanic community move conservative and Republican the longer they stay in the country. But everybody's so wrapped up on the idea of demography. The Federal Reserve has cut interest rates again. The interest rates going down will help stimulate the economy or at least forestall an economic slowdown, further slowdown in this country. The economy has already slowed down. If it happens two quarters in a row, it's considered a recession. The Fed's cutting interest rates may keep us out of a recession as the rest of the world goes into a recession. If the President of the United States can steer an economy where he will get credit or blame and steer it away from a recession, those events will matter. If people keep their jobs, those events will matter. If people go back to work, those events will matter. If people lose their jobs, those events will matter. We have no idea right now what's going to happen in November of next year. Here's what I know to be true today. I don't know anybody who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and is now saying, yeah, not going to vote for him. I know a lot of people who didn't vote for Donald Trump in 2016 who are now saying, yeah, don't like him. But those guys are crazy. I'm going to vote for him. I'm in that camp. And I know a lot of people who are. Just because the opposition to Donald Trump is louder does not mean there's more of it. In fact, of the people I know who are convinced the president is toast, they were convinced the president was toast in 2016. They were fundamentally convinced the president was going to lose in 2016. And when he won, you know what they did? They didn't have any recognition of humility that hmm, maybe I should sit back and reassess what actually is happening in American politics and what bubble am I in? No, they just got louder and more pissed off. 
But just because they're louder and angrier today does not mean there are more of them. The polls do suggest that right now, if the election were held today, the president would lose in swing states that he won in 2016. He's not doing well in those states. But you know what? The election is not today. The election is not today. A few weeks ago, the headlines were about Greta Thunberg. Whatever happened to Greta Thunberg? She's back in the news today. She turned down a prize, said environmentalists don't need any more prizes. But whatever happened to her? How did she get home? Did she go home? I have no idea. Nobody covered that part. We've moved on. A few months ago, we were talking about concentration camps on the southern border. I assume the concentration camps are still there, but the Democrats don't actually care about them because they've stopped talking about them, but nothing's changed. There's been no new funding to change the situation. So maybe there were never concentration camps to begin with, but the Democrats have moved on from it. We're in a brand new news cycle where that's out of it. The entire situation at the southern border is out of the news cycle. Whatever happened to the southern border? Did it get fixed? Is it still bad? Is it improving? Is it worsening? I have no idea. The media is not covering it anymore, and they sure were months ago, and I wonder why. Maybe because they thought it would help the Democrats. Events matter. Events change things. This is an event they've moved on from. It must not help the Democrats anymore. Before that, there was a government shutdown. Before that, there was talk of health care reform. Health care reform again. There were the president's tax cuts. We've moved on from that headline as well. There were all sorts of other headlines out there that we've completely moved on from. What about North Korea? Do you remember the North Korean summit? We actually met with North Korea. The North Koreans were thinking of coming here. The president, we had a trade war with China. They were going to go to Chile to deal with the trade war situation there, but now they're not because Chile's canceled that. The world is in rioting and events matter, and we've moved on from three million news cycles in just the past three months. Who can keep up? You get to November of next year, and the president has been impeached but not convicted, and he's still president. Is that really going to matter? Will it linger? Or will we be so far into another new news cycle that people will have totally forgotten that that had happened in 2000 and the beginning of 2020? Because that'll happen at the beginning of 2020, and then we'll get into a Democratic primary process, and the Democrats will fight each other while the president is beating them up with his campaign war chest, defining them before they can define themselves, and people will totally forget he had ever been impeached. Events matter. The rapid pace of the news timeline matters. All of that matters way more than demography. People will stay home. You get Elizabeth Warren as the Democratic nomination, and she's completely out to lunch with a bunch of people. Uh, she can't resonate with black voters. Hispanic voters are scared of her because they're listening to her policies. and They're thinking, my God, that's what our families fled from in Central and South America. We don't want it here. We may not vote Republican, but we're going to sit this out. Well, those events matter, too. Candidates matter and events matter way more than demography matters. Voters sometimes vote by not voting. But when you listen in Washington, D.C. today, everything is about the president and impeachment. The president got Baghdadi. That was a big news cycle for 48 hours, mostly because the media was outraged at the way the president announced it. And now they're back to impeachment. They've taken a sidetrack from impeachment over to the Photoshop of a dog with the president. Now they're back to impeachment. There's going to be a vote on impeachment today, and then there will be more testimony in impeachment, and they'll focus on that, and then another event will happen. They'll move on to that, and then they'll come back to impeachment. But eventually, impeachment will end. And impeachment will probably end in January when it goes to the Senate. The president is not convicted, and then the media is like, okay, time to move on. Hey, there's a Democratic primary happening. What's going on in the caucuses? Over to you, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina. And we'll have all moved on. Our kids will make it through another year in school. The world will have moved around the sun another full orbit. And on and on and on it will go. There will be other events. They will matter. 
The events of the past may echo into the future. They may not. We may completely forget next year what happened this year. In fact, I can't remember what happened a month ago because the news cycle moves so long. To think that all of these news cycles add up and amount and magnify to help people make their decision when most Americans are single-mindedly focused right now on their job, on their family, on other things. The news cycle of today will probably not shape people's minds a year from now. And guess what? A year from now is the election. On Monday, we will be one year away from the election. And there's a lot of news cycles between now and then. And the president is spending his money like a machine to let everyone know he's going to define the Democrats before they can define him. Will it work? I don't know. There are a lot of people who don't like the president. It's going to be hard for him to change their minds. But it sounds like he's hit on an interesting message. You don't have to like me. I'm not a nice guy, but I'm getting the job done and keeping you safe. And that'll be a message that resonates with people. Events will matter way more than demography and way more than the media's sick obsession with Donald Trump where they can't even look at a Photoshop from the Ben Shapiro Daily Wire website and say, "Eh, this isn't really a story. No, no. To them, it was a story. And that's part of the problem. They generate so many stories that are so stupid that more and more Americans tune out the news overall. And so the events matter less. Everything matters less. And more and more people check out of politics. And it becomes the partisans who are fueled and engaged and enraged to show up at the polls. And you know what? Right now, there appear to be more Republicans engaged and enraged at the Democrats wanting to take away their guns and taxes than there are Democrats. That matters, too. Yeah, as a matter of fact, you are going to want to text RECIPE to 33777 because I'm going to start sending out holiday recipes. i got a sweet potato pie recipe I'll be sending out in just a little while. Uh, Text RECIPE to 33777. I'll tell you how to get your sweet potato pie to not be stringy, which actually matters. Uh, We've got at the top of the hour, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan of Georgia will be joining me to talk about his initiative to raise money to campaign to save the Georgia Senate and, in fact, to pick up Senate seats in Georgia. I think we'll be able to do that. Uh, we, we've got uh, the Democrats having their vote today. I want to play this audio from Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader in the House. We'll get back to impeachment here in a little bit, uh, but want to set the stage with McCarthy. You know, if you ask the American public, they want to see Hunter actually investigated because he got paid and there was an action taken. Now, all your viewers have to understand what Adam Schiff has lied to us about and why the president has done nothing wrong. They had a phone call on July 25th. The, the money was, was sent on September 11th. Ukraine did nothing for the money to be sent forward. So there is Bingo. no quid pro quo. So why are we carrying through this? You know why they continue to keep it in intel and not judiciary? Because Nadler is a failure and Shift is a fraud and is willing to lie to the American public. <sighs> you know, they're probably going to put it back in judiciary. Um, you, you know, they, they actually did behind the scenes. Democrats admit they moved part of it to Adam Schiff's committee because they thought that Jerry Nadler didn't play well with the American public and they wanted to go Adam Schiff. Adam Schiff screwed it all up and now they don't know where to go. But, they, you know, this is going to become, I think, the prevailing talking point from the GOP. Let, let, let's follow the Republican talking points on impeachment. It's kind of important to follow the process here um, that uh, this was a closed door thing. And because it was closed door, it was illegitimate. They stored 
reformed it to highlight that it was closed door. So the Democrats said, okay, uh, we will take the vote you've been wanting us to take. So the Republicans said, well, it was illegitimate then. It'll be illegitimate now. We're not going to participate. The Democrats are going to take the vote. They're going to bring it out from the shadows. And now the Republican talking point is going to be, and it's a good one. The money went to Ukraine. They never engaged. They never investigated. They never did what the president wanted, and they still got the money. So how's their quid pro quo? That will be their line. I suspect, so the Senate Republicans right now have hit on a new tactic to deal with impeachment. The the Senate Republican tactic is, we're not going to talk about impeachment. We're going to be the jurors. And they're not going to cast aspersions on people. Here's Mitch McConnell. Look, I'm not going to question the patriotism of any of the people who are coming forward. Uh, The action is in the House now. We'll see whether they can, A, meet the due process standards, fundamental due process standards, and then see what they do. I think the vote that they're now going to have to open the impeachment inquiry will be very interesting. Uh, Will all the Democrats vote for it? I, I said I'm, I'm not going to comment on the merits of what's going forward. We're watching what happens in the House, and we'll see whether they actually open this uh, impeachment inquiry. Apparently, they're going to vote on it later this week. It's going to be a very interesting vote. Yeah, it's going to be a very interesting vote, and he's not going to comment on it because he'll be a juror. That That's where they're headed with this, but I, I suspect there's going to be something else. We're going to hear the Republicans chart a new course, and it will be that— we're so close to the election, let the voters decide. You know, that's actually a good message. It's it's one I've pushed them for, uh, that we're close to the election. Let, let the voters decide on this. The Democrats drag their feet. It's something they've always wanted to do, and they still couldn't get their ducks in a row until they ran out the clock. They've run out the clock. Let the voters decide. When we come back, Jeff Duncan, Lieutenant Governor of Georgia, and all these voters being purged in Georgia, I'll give you the truth on what's going on. Hello and welcome from the North Georgia mountains to the Florida line, from the Chattahoochee to the Atlantic Ocean. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. Glad to be with you from my flagship station, WGAU in Athens, Georgia. The phone number, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425 is the phone number. I mentioned yesterday there was a uh, there, there was a story in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution about Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, who is uh, working quietly to raise money to make sure that the Georgia Senate stays in Republican hands. The Lieutenant Governor joining me this morning uh, by phone. Let's see. There you go. How are you? Good morning, Eric. We're doing well. Great. Uh, so uh, what's your house doing for, for Halloween? Are you going to be rained out? Well, we, we got a busy day, so we got the three boys, but uh, I'm sitting out front of the doctor's office waiting to take one of my kids in for a follow-up visit. Then we've got some meetings at the Capitol and a press conference. They're going to join me there, and then we're going to end the night in Osceola, Georgia, uh, at Senator Tyler Harper's event down there. And we're going to trick-or-treat in Osceola, Georgia. Nice. Fantastic. Now, let's talk about saving the Senate, because the Democrats certainly do seem like they want to target some of these seats in the suburbs. But I've run the data, uh, and I've run it several times, and I've called the boards of elections in these counties. I've gotten the precinct data to see how many people there are. You know, I used to do this for a living years ago, and I decided to do it by hand. And what I'm struck with is that Democrats really did turn out in 2018 in some of these districts, and they couldn't shake Republicans out of them then. And yet the Republicans didn't turn out uh, at a presidential election level, and they're going to. And it looks like a lot of people have just gotten the overall narrative wrong about what happened in 2018. 
Well, look, Eric, I, I think to, to that point, to kind of continue to play on it, I live and breathe in the suburbs. I've been raised here. I grew up, went to high school in Alpharetta, live in Cumming, had businesses all across the metro area. I know the suburbs. And, and here's what I know about the suburbs and the folks that we, we – we, you know, I coach their kids and, and, and know these families. They're with us with, with a majority of these issues. And that's really the genesis behind Advanced Georgia is really just allowing us to have a tool and a resource to remind these districts that potentially, at least on paper, you know, look to maybe be vulnerable just to remind them that, you know, look, conservative leadership is driving better education into their schools, delivering better, more affordable health care, uh, continuing to look for ways to grow an economy and create a workforce that's unpenetrable, you know, and, and, and last through slowdowns. That, to me, is what the suburbs, you know, are, are all about. And, uh, you know, I think it's just an opportunity to continue the message to them. Well, you know, you you say that, and, and it's one of the reasons I wanted to start the second show is because I, I noticed that outside of some of the, the left-leaning news outlets in the state, there's really nowhere for Republicans to be able to get out their message. Uh, and it, it's harder and harder with the collapse of local media to be able to cover the entire state. So, I mean, right now, for example, uh, you're, you're headed down to Ascilla tonight. And, and folks in Osceola will are able to listen to you uh, right now with me because I'm broadcast down there, and we just don't have anything like that. And it seems like at the political level, we haven't had any uh, groups focused like Advanced Georgia to focus just on the state Senate. Everybody fights for attention. The state party tries to help everybody, and uh, it seems like people get in each other's way. So it, it's it's good that you're doing what you're doing. Yeah, look, this is, this is a tool and, and a resource that we want to, you know, laser focus on the Senate because we feel like there's a lot of good work that's been done in this past session and a lot of great work in front of us. I got elected for a four-year term, and I'm going go to go, go to work every single day to accomplish all of those, those policies and, and, and agenda items that, that we were sent here to do along with the governor. You know, look, we're, we're, we're laser focused on policy. My big campaign slogan was policy over politics. And one of the neatest opportunities for me over the last nine, ten months have been to really put a campaign slogan into play. If you watch the way we navigated this past session in the Senate, it was a policy-driven agenda. It was about getting the policy right. It was about micro-analyzing all the details because words do matter. And to me, that really is, you know, these soft, you know, districts that everybody keeps talking about. To me, they pay attention to the details. These are folks running businesses, working for sophisticated organizations, you know, really, really watching how this interacts with them. And, you know, prime example is healthcare. Today we're going to have a press conference with the governor where we're going to talk about this 1332 waiver process that I believe is going to answer a lot of challenges in, in you know, folks, you know, health care problems all across Georgia. Uh, you mentioned 1332, the, the waiver. Can you kind of I- explain that so people understand what you're talking about? Well, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll have, I don't want to speak to, you know, jump out. Yeah, I don't want to put you on the spot there, but yeah. Right, but, but the, the, what we passed during the General Assembly was uh, a couple of pieces, of, uh, a piece of legislation allows us to really modernize and reform the way we deliver health care here in Georgia, both through an 1115 waiver and a 1332 waiver. And, uh, you know, I just need to applaud the governor for taking, taking you know, the lead on wanting to reform the way we deliver health care. And look, the feds have punted on the issue around health care for a decade you know, we've had policymakers trying to make healthcare decisions in partisan corners. The healthcare decisions that we're going to make here in Georgia are going to be based on reality. They're going to be based on need. They're going to be based on the data that drives what we do and go forward. And to me, I think the greatest thing we're doing here on healthcare is not only delivering it for us here in Georgia, 
more more effectively, more efficiently, more affordably. But I think we're going to lead an entire nation on it. And to me, that matters. It's not just political 10-second sound bites. It's about substance. And to me, that's what I believe people are starting to pay attention to. Who's going to get the work done that they said they're going to get done? And to me, that's what drives me to get up every day and, and, and go to work at the Capitol. You, you mentioned the substance of it in, in bringing policy to reality over politics. I, I, I got really kind of aggravated with a columnist at the AJC who wrote, the, it, it mostly mentioned Brian Kemp, but also dragged you into it that uh, you can't fix public schools in Georgia if you're allowing people to, to leave the public schools that are collapsing, which sounds to me like a, a hostage situation. And I know you care passionately about school reform, and it's one of the, the issues you've pushed to some degree, even against some Republicans in, in, the, in the Republican caucus, that you want school reform. And yet we continue now to see uh, Democrats in particular say you're not allowed to allow these parents who want a better education for their kids to actually get it. So, you know, what, what's so interesting is in the private sector, I've always kind of viewed people with perspective as having, you know, the, the, the most insight to a situation. So the perspective I look through with this whole school school choice issue is I've got three kids. They're all in a public school system. I was a product of the public schools. My wife was a product of the public schools. My sister's an assistant principal at a public school. I get public schools. I understand that 90-plus percent of kids are educated in public schools, and I'm going to do everything I can do to continue to improve public schools all across the state. I believe the greatest gift we give a child is a quality K-12 education. But here's what I know. As I traveled the state for two-plus years begging for this job of lieutenant governor, not every school system affords the same opportunities to their kids, to their students, as the ones that, that I live in and that I was, well, I was a part of growing up. And so we need to make sure that education is centered around the child, you know, and that's going to look different ways in different places. School choice is going to need to be a part of a community that isn't delivering on a promise to educate their kids with a quality performance every day. Here's another thing, Eric, every platform I get, every opportunity I get to share this, I do around education. We need to, as a state, begin to remind parents and guardians all over the state in every community that the education of their children is meant to be a true partnership with the school. It's not a drop-off and pick-up program. And that is a universal message in all 159 counties that we need to drive home. Because it truly, I mean, just five minutes a day of spending time with your kid, whether it's on the drive home or the drive to dinner or just sitting there before they go to bed and say, hey, what'd you learn today? Who's your best friend? Do you still want to be a doctor? You, you know, t- tell me what your easiest subject is. What are you struggling with? When's your next test? Five minutes. It'll change the trajectory of their education. Now, just just to be fair here, I do that with my kid and I get nothing. I don't remember what. I'm like, I pay for your education and you can't even tell me what you did today. <laughs> yeah. We're at that age right now with my kid. Uh, <laughs> now, you should, Go I've got a senior in high school, an eighth grader, and a, and a nine-year-old, a third grader. So I've got quite the spread. Yeah, we, we're 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 eighth grade and, and fifth grade here. So now, let me ask you for this coming legislative session. You, you got a couple months to think about it. What do you think should be the, the big policy proposal for Republicans to set them apart for twenty twenty? So. Look, I think we're in the process of gathering other people's opinions in the Senate. Obviously, going to work with the governor on the initiative. I think health care is going to continue to be a big deal. Uh, I think the ground we gained, we passed 22 health care bills last year as, uh, as compared to one the year before. We're going to continue to gain a lot of momentum around health care with price transparency, continuing to look for ways to expand telehealth. 
And, and then I think really trying to gain the momentum from this waiver process that we've gone through. So healthcare is going to continue to be a big, big push. Uh, and an initiative that I want to really wrap my hands around is, you know, uh, you've probably heard me talk about it, but I want Georgia to be the technology capital of the East Coast and really looking for ways and strategies to put us in an even better position to capture the best and brightest from around the world, either stay here or move here, bring your dollars. If you're an investor, bring your big ideas, bring your corporations here in a way that allows us to create an ecosystem of talent. Um, every business is a technology company, whether it's a lawnmower shop looking for their next customer on social media or Coca-Cola trying to move a couple of million bottles of, of soft drinks around the world every day. So I'm going to make that a big push. I know that foster care is a continued area of focus. Uh, it's one I'm personally passionate about. It's, it's something that I think we can continue to do a better job. Uh, and so I think we'll continue to see those conservative ideas play out. But, yes, we are right in the middle of that process of putting everything on the table and seeing what we want to move forward with. Last thing for you, you mentioned heading down to, to Irwin County tonight. And, you know, the, the further south you get, particularly past Warner Robins now, uh, we're, we're down in our stations on. We've got stations in uh, Quitman and Adel and uh, coming soon to, to a few more in South Georgia and, and Vidalia. And you get out there. The land gets flat, the houses are further spread apart, and there's more and more data showing that there are a lot of people who feel like they can't live there even if they want to live there because of technology and infrastructure and, and lack of access to jobs. And I know uh, the rural part of the state is something that matters to everybody in the state legislature, regardless of, of partisan affiliation, but how to actually help rural Georgia is one of those big issues that seems to divide the parties right now and would be interested in your thoughts on, on where the the legislature should head this next year yeah i mean gr- great great way to set the table right rural georgia uh is some i got to meet rural georgia about four or five years ago when i wrote the rural health care uh um, hospital tax credit bill it was just a big idea i came up with sitting at north point church with a great program that they have this time of year called be rich every year and, and it really just kind of got to me and said let's utilize what i like to call the four c's churches charities corporations and citizens to kind of wrap around these rural hospitals so I got to understand these folks in rural Georgia, and really, they, they're not in rural Georgia because they have to be. They're there because they want to be there. And that, I think, is something fundamentally kind of broken at the General Assembly, is not always do people realize that, that aren't from rural Georgia. And so for me, during the campaign, I spent two years traveling, zigzagging every single community in the state. And what I realized was we can no longer just subsidize our way to, to protect rural Georgia. They need to feel the economic growth and opportunities that sit there in front of them, whether that's a manufacturing opportunity that shows up or stays or grows. Or in my world, you know, I talked about the technology capital of the East Coast. I didn't say Atlanta. I said Georgia. I think one of the greatest lifelines to rural Georgia could eventually be technology because it knows no boundaries. And looking for ways to make sure school systems are educating their kids K-12 through in a 21st century global economy making sure that communities have the resources necessarily necessary to cre- create workforce development for 20, 30, 40, 50-year-olds that, that are now migrating you know, through and, 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 and across different in- industries. Um, there's a huge opportunity here for rural Georgia, and I want to make sure that they feel like they are included, but I also want them to wake up every day and know the same thing that I know, and that's Georgia's best days are in front of us. They truly are. If you look at the trajectory of where we're headed, We want rural Georgia to participate just like suburban areas across the state. I can certainly tell you you've got a governor that cares about rural Georgia. I can certainly tell you right here you have a lieutenant governor that cares about rural Georgia. 
Well, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, listen, thank you very much for stopping by, and, and hopefully the rain will blow out before you get down to Osceola tonight. You guys have a great time down there. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Look forward to seeing you again, Eric. Absolutely. Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan of Georgia, he wanted to stop by and talk about this this program, Advanced Georgia, in addition to the rural health care and, and rural issues affecting the state. He's put together a, an organization to fundraise to specifically focus on keeping the Georgia Senate, which we actually haven't had these standalone groups. I, I know that sounds a little bit odd, uh, but we haven't had standalone groups now, on the Republican side in Georgia to focus just on the House and just on the Senate, we've had caucus groups, but there's a difference between having the caucus groups and these outside groups uh, with outside consultants looking at the state uh, somewhat dispassionately of where to target money, and, and that's what he wants to do. Yeah, if you want to re-listen to uh, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan's interview with me, text the word SHOW to 33777. I'll send you a link to the podcast of the show so you can listen to it. You can keep up to date with all your your news through the podcast if you miss the live show. Uh, The state intends to remove 313,243 people from the rolls, from the voter rolls. Uh, It is uh, a process that happens every odd-numbered year. And the media is absolutely, vehemently, hysterically mad about it. And I want to explain this to you. Uh, The people who are being removed from the rolls have not voted in seven years. And the media is really, really missing this. Um, In 2017, Georgia removed about 520,000 people from the voter rolls. And the reason the number was so high, in fact, it was the highest purge of voters ever. The media misses why. Uh, A lawsuit had been filed in 2015, and a federal judge prevented Georgia from purging uh, rolls in 2015. So uh, they couldn't purge until 2017, and they had an accumulation of uh, people. And And the data went back to 2007. Uh, you need to understand how voter purges in Georgia work. If if listen to me now, I'll explain it as easily as possible, and then when you get into arguments with your friends over this, you will be the most informed person in the room. After the 2000 presidential election, the federal government passed the Help America Vote Act. It's called HAVA, commonly, uh, Help America Vote Act, H-A-V-A. One of the rules within HAVA is that the states have to regularly clean up their voter rolls. Now, what some states do is they go out of their way to find and hound people to vote. And if they don't vote, they put them on a separate list of inactive voters. And when they vote again, uh, they're put back on the active voter list. Some states... Georgia is one of them. In fact, the majority of the states do what Georgia does is they have what's called use it or lose it. And if you don't vote for a number of years, then you're removed from the rolls altogether and you have to re-register to vote. The Georgia rule is seven uh, years. Here's what happens. In Georgia, if you miss two even-numbered elections, I'm sorry, uh, you miss two presidential elections, you get a letter from the Secretary of State's office in the fifth year. And in the fifth year, they tell you, you haven't voted for four years. You've missed the last two presidential elections and you've missed a gubernatorial election. If you don't notify the Board of Elections or vote, 
within the next two years, we're going to presume that you no longer want to vote, you don't live here, or you're dead or in jail. So they don't send you the letter until the fifth year of not voting. And then they wait two more years to clean up the voter roll. So again, here, here's, here's how it works. You don't vote in 2012, 13, 14, 15, or 16. You say, wait, wait, wait. Well, well, that's not fair because 13 and 15 don't have races. Yes, they do. Municipal elections in odd-numbered years and splossed elections in odd-numbered years. So 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16, you don't vote. 12, 13, 14, yeah, you don't vote. You've missed two presidential elections in 2012 and 2016. You've missed a statewide election in 2014, and you've missed municipal and splossed elections in 2013 and 2015. The state sends you a letter, and the letter says, we've noticed you haven't voted in the last two presidential elections or the gubernatorial election or the splossed election and the municipal election in your area. We presume that you have moved or died or gone to jail or been declared incompetent or, or we have no idea. But if you don't vote in the next two years, we're going to remove you from the rolls. So they didn't vote in 12, they didn't vote in 13, 14, 15, they didn't vote in 16, they didn't vote in 17 and they got the letter. And they didn't vote in 18. They didn't vote in 19. They get removed from the rolls. We're talking about a seven-year process to get it right. And the media wants you to hear this number, 313,243, and think, oh my gosh, this is horrible. Uh, how could this happen? That's so many people. What they're not telling you is that 192,682 of those people have moved out of state. We're only actually talking about, uh, what, what, let me give you the precise number here. We're only talking about 120,561 people. The others, the 192,000, they've moved out of state or their mail has been returned undeliverable because they no longer live there and the state can't find them. More details on this when we come back. Yes, go to the resurgent every day. Bring up my website traffic. Uh, so the state, let, let me just, uh, let me round this out for you a little bit because I want to get into other stuff, but I really do want you to understand this. Uh, under Georgia law, the voter list can only be purged in odd numbered years, and the rolls can only be purged if a voter has had no contact with boards of elections for five years or has not voted in five years. Then the state's got to wait two years for a total of seven years. So a voter purged in 2017 is a voter who hasn't voted in the previous seven years. The number in 2017 with the 520,000 voter purge uh, was so large because a federal court had enjoined the state in 2015. So the data from 2014 and 2015 uh, couldn't be purged, which corresponded to 2007 and 2008. Uh, the release from the judge to purge the votes didn't come until 2017. And so that included voters who had registered in 2007 to 2010, which was during the Obama era when there were massive waves of voter registration drives in the state of Georgia. Many of those people never actually showed up to vote. You know, I mean, just take Stacey Abrams. I've made this point before. The Abrams campaign was able to get about a million people registered to vote in 2000, uh, 2017, 2018. 40,000 of those people showed up, basically. Now, that's not exactly true, but essentially she was only able to bring up the amount of vote that Hillary Clinton got from 2016 uh, by 40,000 votes. 
So most of the Democrats stayed engaged. Some fell away, some new came in. But, I mean, basically, for all the people registered to vote, barely any showed up to turn up. And the same thing happened in 2007 to 2010 between voter registration drives by Democrats and by Republicans. There were massive numbers of people who were registered and they never actually showed up to vote. And seven years later, they got taken off the rolls because they never showed up. Now, the current purge is 313,243 people. The state is making the list public so people can track them down. Georgia Public Broadcasting says about 80,000 of them are people who we don't know whether they moved out of state or not because mail got returned to the Secretary of State saying it was undeliverable. So they may have died, they may have moved, uh, but they didn't have a forwarding address. So some of the people may live in Georgia and have no forwarding address, but we know 80,000 of them uh, are unreturned mail. Most of them, though, most of them are people who actually moved out of state. Of the 80, let me just, I'm going to pull out my calculator here and do this live on the air. Uh, so we've got 192,682 people who either mail returned saying they had moved out of state or mail had returned saying they couldn't be found. 80,000 of them are people who couldn't be found. So 112,682 of the people are people who moved out of state. Of this 313,000 number, 112,000 are people who moved out of state. 80,000 are people who mail was returned to the Secretary of State's office saying we don't know where they are, we we can't find them. That leaves 120,561 people. That's the actual number here that's significant. 120,561 people, they have not, they registered to vote and they haven't voted in 7 years. So they haven't voted since uh when 2011. They didn't register. They didn't vote in 2012. They didn't vote in 13. They didn't vote in 14. They didn't vote in 15. They didn't vote in 16. They got a notice in 17 saying if you don't vote by 2018, you're going to be taken off the rolls in 2019. They didn't vote in 2017 and they didn't vote in 2018. And so now they're going to be taken off the rolls. They've never voted. That's the thing here that the the media distracts from. Uh, the media turns this into some sort of scandal of voters being thrown off the rolls, denied their right to vote. These are people who haven't voted. In fact, of the uh, I want to focus on the hundred twenty thousand five hundred sixty one. Of the hundred twenty thousand five hundred sixty one, more than half of those. More than 60,000 of those registered to vote and never actually cast a ballot ever. My pause is intentional here. I want you to digest that. More than 60,000 of the 120,000 people who can't be found, who mail was sent to them, mail was sent to their house saying you're going to be taken off the rolls if you don't respond or vote. The mail did not get returned to the Secretary of State, so they presumably still live at that address. And they didn't respond, they didn't vote, they didn't do anything. More than 60,000 of those people have never voted. So how do they get registered to vote? Well, in Georgia, Georgia has the um, Motor Voter Act. You go get a driver's license, you're going to get signed up to vote, whether you want to vote or not. You go to your local Kroger, there's going to be some activist out there trying to sign you up to vote. You go to your your church, there's probably going to be a church drive, depending on the type of church you go to, and you're going to get signed up to vote. And if you don't vote, 
Well, in Georgia, you lose it. you got to re-register later. Now, you can go re-register at any time. And I, I guarantee you there's going to be a concerted effort made to find these people. But that's the striking thing that, that gets missed in all the hysteria. Uh, Kamala Harris, uh, we'll get into Kamala Harris here in just a bit. Kamala Harris is running around saying, oh, uh, Georgia doing this. This is a violation of civil rights. Stacey Abrams would be president. But for this, no, no, she wouldn't because these people have never voted. Or at least in the last seven years, these people didn't show up to vote for Stacey Abrams. That's a problem. It's a scam. Uh, and there's a lot of outrage by Democrats, um, and it's it's not go- going to improve. Now, uh, I, I, w- I want to do a housekeeping note real quick. Uh, we've, we're having internet difficulties in the studio this morning, and so the Facebook feed uh, is out of sync now by a couple of seconds, so I'm going to stop the Facebook feed and then restart it immediately for those of you who are watching online so that uh, it no longer looks like a bad uh, martial arts dubbed movie where my voice and my mouth are completely out of sync and then i will restart it again uh we so there's construction outside the neighborhood where i work uh and live for that matter and uh, the construction is messing up our power is going off our internet is going off it has been a mess uh thankfully the power on my end of the of the neighborhood never really gets impacted as bad but it gives us slow internet sometimes in fact last week they cut the internet line uh you know i I had this discussion uh on a uh on my other show about uh, people who are maxing out their caps because they're streaming now Uh, So many people are ditching cable and they're getting their preferred streaming service and they're maxing their internet caps, the bandwidth from their internet company, and they're getting nasty notes from the internet company. uh, And the internet companies are saying, you've gone over on your streaming. I finally, I got so tired of doing this because coincidence of coincidence, they told me they weren't degrading my internet, but every time I would get an email from my internet provider, uh, suddenly my internet would slow to a crawl. They said, no, no, it's, we have no idea why that's happening. We would never do that. It always happened after I got the email. I finally got fed up and got a business line for the internet in my house. Uh, and it's, it's about a hundred bucks more a month. Uh, but I get, it's faster. It's more reliable. I don't have a cap. And the cool thing is if something happens, there's a storm or something, my internet comes on before everybody else in the neighborhood. It's brilliant. It gets me back on Netflix and, and, and all these other streaming services and here with you, (coughs) excuse me, way quicker than everybody else. Now that was a random aside. Facebook has restarted and we need to talk about transgenderism in Georgia. I, I, I know it is a subject in which you must tread carefully. Jenny Earhart uh, replaced her husband, Earl Earhart, in the Georgia state legislature. And she wants to pass legislation that would prohibit uh, gender surgery for people um, who are younger than puberty. I'm trying to pull up the article here so I can get it for you. Naturally, uh, activists are gay rights activists. Transgender activists actually are livid. Uh, there's a lot of spin out here. But here's the thing. Uh, let me let me read you from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Uh, Jenny Earhart's legislation says if the measure is approved by the General Assembly, uh, these specific procedures would be banned before puberty. 
mastectomy, vasectomy, castration, genital mutilation for the purposes of gender transition. Banned medications would include giving minors puberty-blocking drugs to stop or delay normal puberty and cross-sex hormone therapy. The removal of otherwise healthy or non-diseased body parts for minor children would also be prohibited. Um, a lot of transgender activists out there will tell you that this doesn't happen, that doctors wait until puberty to do these sorts of things. And yet it's telling to me that they're outraged. You know, if, if there was no there there, they'd say, okay, nobody does it anyway. Go on and prohibit it. But they're not doing that. Uh, what they're doing is saying, oh, we can't do this. We can't do this. You, you can't do this. This is bigotry. Why is it, if nobody does it anyway, why does it harm you to pass a law saying we're going to prohibit it? We're going to make it clear you can't do it because we're starting to see it in other places. Take the, the, the woman in Texas with the twins who are seven years old and the one she decided was actually a girl because when he was three years old, he was at McDonald's playing with a Happy Meal toy and it happened to be a girl's toy and he played with it and enjoyed it. And the mom said, aha, he must be transgender. He's playing with the girl's toy. And she's saying she may want to give her son puberty blockers to help him transition full-time to being a girl. She calls him Luna. His name is James. She calls him Luna. By the way, this sounds very much like it's an issue with the mother and not the child, uh, from my vantage point, uh, and the people who have observed the trial, and and from the father who's now been um, put under a gag order because uh, the trial went public, and uh, the judge got mad at him, and now the judge is saying that the father is going to be able to have some sort of say but I don't believe it. I'll believe it when I see it. But uh, we're we're seeing parents come forward now, and they want to do this to their children before puberty. And if you don't believe me here, look at what's happening in Europe, particularly in, in the U.K., where this has been happening. So Jenny Earhart comes forward with the legislation and says that uh, she is, is very much opposed to allowing parents to mutilate the genitals or or other bodily aspects of children who haven't hit puberty. Doctors routinely say that you should not uh, do stuff like this before a child hits puberty because of hormones, and yet Planned Parenthood and others are saying uh, transgenderism is perfectly normal and uh, we should allow parents to give children drugs to block puberty or give girls drugs to increase testosterone, uh, and on and on it goes. And, and meanwhile, there, there are plenty of, of studies that show and plenty of people who have come forward who, when they get through puberty and, and their body settles down, they say, you know what, wait, I'm, I'm not transgender after all. I, it's just It was a phase I was going through. In the UK, I've mentioned this before, there's a nonprofit group that wants to start, and, and they're getting death threats in opposition to nonprofit status because they want to start a charity that will help people who transition who want to go back. Some of them have mutilated their bodies, and it's impossible for them to physically go back, but they've decided they made a mistake. In this group, uh, there are hundreds and hundreds of people who have come forward now. And, you know, the most striking thing to me is how the media downplays that. You can see how agenda-driven this is. I mean, take again this this legislation from uh, Jenny Earhart. Jenny Earhart wants people prohibited from mutilating their children before their children go through puberty because they're convinced their child is transgender. And doctors and advocacy groups say, well, this doesn't happen. It's not an issue. 
If it doesn't happen and it's not an issue, there should be no harm passing the law because zero people will be affected. And yet, when you try to pass the law, they say, well, this is harmful bigotry. In fact, um, there is an... Uh, uh, Georgia Equality, the LGBTQQIATPP plus whatever uh, group, uh, says that this is shameful. The legislation would criminalize decisions that are made carefully within families in consultation with medical professionals and mental health professionals. Supporting children in recognizing their gender identity is not only humane, it saves lives and strengthens families. But nobody does it before a child is, hits puberty. So why is it wrong to prohibit it? They say it's shameful. Why is it shameful? Your child doesn't know what your child wants to eat for dinner. Last night, we sat around the house for an hour. I got off the air at at 6 p.m. on my other show, and it was 7 o'clock before people decided what they wanted to eat. The 10-year-old, I don't know what I want to eat. What do you want to eat? I don't know. Let's ask the 14-year-old. I don't know what I want to eat, Dad. What does Mom want to eat? I don't know. We went around in a circle for an hour before we decided what we wanted to eat. Typical at my house. And yet somehow a seven-year-old can definitively decide, you know what, I think I'm a girl. That's religious faith. That's not science. In fact, the the biological science is overwhelming that uh, boys can't become girls and girls can't become boys. It's, It's biology. It's nature. And yet we've concocted this idea that gender identity is, is something separate and unique. Uh, no, no. I mean, the, the, the DSM says, is it the DSM? It says the, um, it, that gender dysphoria is a, is a mental health thing. But now you've got doctors saying, well, yes, and, and the cure for it is to conform one's body to it. What happens if the mental health issue goes away and you can't conform your body back? It, this this is a religious issue. It is a by-faith issue. If you go on Twitter and you look at my Twitter bio, uh, you will see a, a citations to Romans 1 that I am not ashamed of the gospel. If you go to a woke, someone who practices the woke religion of the day, you will go on Twitter and you will find their preferred pronouns because it is a by-faith thing. It is a religion with these people. And the fact that they say no one does it, but you can't pass a law against it, is another sign of that religion. If no one does it, there should be no harm in passing a law saying don't do it, particularly when we actually know there is a trend of more and more people deciding they are going to do it because they go to some quack doctor who says, yes, let's do it. Before puberty. It's horrifying that parents will permanently disfigure their child even before their child has had a a full chance to develop and perhaps change their mind. When so often now we see in these situations, it's the parents who are doing it. The new trend of of, um, raising babies. Have you heard about this? They call them babies. Babies? Yes. It's they don't want to raise their child to be a boy or a girl. They want the child to be able to grow up free of harmful gender stereotypes. You know, a lot of these people have, have no kids and they get kids, and what they find is like with my kids, where the kids, you move them forward, and, and you, you're you like, hey, you want the truck, little girl? Have the truck. And they get to about six years old, they don't want the truck, they want the doll. A lot of this is nature, and they're scared to death to recognize the fact that nature plays a role in this. And you know why? Because a lot of this stuff is not reflected in nature. And so you can say, then, therefore, it is what? Not natural if it's not reflected in nature. And they got to shut you up for pointing it out, which is censorship because they're scared 
for everyone else to speak on the truth. It is Eric Erickson here, The Eric Erickson Show. If you want to be a part of the program, uh, you can call in 877-973-7425. Nancy Pelosi, this happened just a few minutes ago, uh, very angry with reporters asking about the fairness of the process. They're debating now uh, the impeachment resolution. I, I told my wife earlier they normally don't take a seat until 11. They started early today. The vote should happen before noon. Here's Pelosi, though, with reporters asking her about the fairness of the process. She sure doesn't like it. Uh, Republicans say that this process is not due process for the president. Are these rules really fair? Yes, they are. Yes, they are. Now, if they answered it once, I'll answer it twice. I'm going to answer it one time. These rules are fairer than anything uh, that have gone before in terms of, uh, of a, an impeachment proceeding. Uh, I'm not here to answer what the Republicans say. If you have any questions, we're doing appropriations, we're doing trade, we're doing drug prices, uh, lowering the cost of drug prices. I'm not here to answer any questions about what the Republicans say. <laughs> you know, it's actually not as fair a process. And the reason it's not as fair as process is because the Republicans are beholden to the chairman of the committees now uh, for witnesses they want to call and questions they want to ask. Um, they they do have a, a time, the chair and the ranking member, the chair is the Democrat ranking member Republican. So in judiciary, for example, it would be Jerry Nadler and Doug Collins. Uh, they will be able to ask 45 minutes of questions or defer to staff to ask questions. Um, but if the Republicans want to call witnesses, the Democrat chair gets to block it and the reason is because they really don't want the whistleblower out there now they were so desperate to have the whistleblower and now they don't here's Steny hoyer the house majority leader number two in the house by nancy pelosi in the investigatory phase we don't believe that uh, in due process under our constitution under our laws that the defendant or the alleged defendant or prospective defendant has a right to appear before the grand jury they didn't appear uh, the Clinton administration didn't appear before Starr, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, yeah, actually, uh, the Clinton administration did. Uh, they did take testimony that there was due process. There was more due process than right now. Uh, it's a stunning admission from the uh, number two Democrat in the House that they don't care about due process right now. Uh, and the Republicans have been saying they don't care about due process. It, it, it is a process where they're giving the Republicans all the ammunition the Republicans need to say this isn't fair that you haven't thoroughly vetted it, uh, that you have not gathered all the evidence. And the whistleblower is significant now. Uh, There is a report out on Real Clear Investigations. Uh, They're naming someone uh, as the whistleblower, and he is a partisan Democratic activist who took part in progressive rallies in college, a young guy uh, who uh, was, was catered to by Democrats in the Obama White House. He's a holdover from the Obama White House. He has tried to file complaints against the president in the past because he didn't like the things the president was doing. It appears that the uh, whistleblower is a young partisan hack. Uh, we don't know. I'm, I'm not raising the guy's name intentionally, though, because we don't know. And I don't want to ruin somebody if it's not actually him. A lot of conservatives are out there circulating it right now. Uh, It started actually two years ago. The same guy was named by some of the white nationalist guys as someone trying to obstruct the president's um, agenda, which raises questions in my mind uh, about multiple things. I want to be careful how we treat the story because I do believe in truth. But we got more on impeachment when we come back. We need to talk about. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. Atlanta's. Well, nope, that's the other. (laughs) all right we got to move on 
Uh, welcome. Uh, the phone number is 877-973-7425. 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425. I, I, some people get mad at me for doing this, but I, I feel an obligation to do it. And I want you to know, uh, if you're listening to this, some stations air this in delay. And I apologize to them. Uh, but I'm talking right now. It is 1107 on Halloween morning and the rain has finally arrived. There's a cold front pushing through Georgia and in Rome and in Dalton right now, you're getting hit with the first wave and you're about uh, 30, 45 minutes from the really heavy stuff. Uh, Jasper, you're going to be getting it here in a little while. Um, if you go down to Valdosta and uh, Adele and Quitman and Douglas, uh, Americus, uh, you're in the clear right now, but it's coming for you too. It's just going to be later in the day for you. Uh, if you're over in, uh, Clarksville and Athens, it's going to be happening for you probably in about two hours. Uh, and it's going to be out of your area later than the rest of us in Macon. Uh, it's probably not going to hit us until about two o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, and it's going to drop temperatures significantly into the thirties overnight across the state of Georgia. Uh, I mean, down past Macon, it's going to, it's going to be 37 in our house in the morning in Macon. Uh, so it's going to be cold. Uh, the east side of the state, you're going to have uh, probably problems with trick-or-treating tonight. Uh, the the western part of the state, it's probably going to be blown through your area by 4 or 5 o'clock. Uh, and in so doing, you'll be able to go trick-or-treating. I'm not sure about my house. It should be cleared up by 5 o'clock in, in the mid-state and in the middle middle Georgia area. And so we may be able to trick-or-treat. I just, I don't know. The yards are going to be a muddy mess. I don't know that I want people trekking through my yard uh, that wet, uh, tearing up my grass. It, it, does that make me a, a, a get-off-my-lawn guy? Um, I, I mean, we got a sidewalk they can use, but nobody does. And anyway, um, we'll see. The impeachment vote will be happening here shortly on the floor of the House of Representatives. They are arguing about impeachment right now on the floor. Everybody gets their side. Minds are mostly made up. The question is who loses more people. There are, as I mentioned in the first hour, 19 Republicans who are leaving Congress. Some of them don't like the president. But thus far, they've largely signaled that they are going to stand with the president of the United States, and they're not going to go along with the Democratic Party. Uh, I want to play you some of the audio here uh, from this, uh, the floor debates that they're having right now. Uh, you've got a number of Republicans speaking. The The one I want to play and, and focus on most, though, is our own congressman from here in Georgia, Doug Collins, who is the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee. Here I yield uh, two minutes to my good friend, distinguished Republican ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee from the state of Georgia, Mr. Collins. Gentlemen's recognized for two minutes. Thank you, Madam Speaker. No matter what is said... By the other side today, this is a dark day and a cloud has fallen on this house. It has been falling for 10 months and it is showing itself today. What we are seeing is this. If the gentleman who is a friend of mine from the Rules Committee would actually want to talk about are these the same rules as Clinton and Nixon, then we would have had a much longer period of debate because he knows and I know it is not. There are similarities, some better, some not, but they are not the same. Let's get that out of the way first. 
The problem I'm having here is the resolution before us today is not about transparency. It's about control. It's not about fairness. It's about winning. It's about following the facts. This resolution is about delivering results. You know how I know this? Because the resolution gives no proper way for how these abilities or transferring of documents from the Intel Committee to Judiciary Committee will happen. doesn't even give a time frame. And I've heard a lot of discussion today about maybe we didn't know how to properly ask last night in the Rules Committee. I'll guarantee you my staff and I know how to properly use Rule 11 2E to ask for information. And we're told yesterday by a committee, one of the committees, that we couldn't have access to it because the parliamentarian said we couldn't. That's just false and needs to stop. This House is developing and shredding procedures every day. And if members of the minority or the majority cannot have the rights that they are given, then we're in a sad situation. And in fact, the haste to put this together, they didn't even exempt, as was done in Clinton and Nixon, the Rule 11 2E, they didn't even exempt it out. Even in those two impeachments, it was known that maybe we don't let every member come see this while this is going on. We didn't even exempt it during this time. We were so hurried to impeach this president, we don't really give a darn about the rules. But here's my biggest concern. As ranking member of the Judiciary Committee, I have a question. We've been here 200-plus years as a committee, and our committee has been neutered. Our committee who handles impeachment, we're the reason in that committee, that's our jurisdiction, we have been completely sidelined. Our chairman and others have been sidelined, so I have been sidelined. It is so bad that they had to have the Rules Committee write the presidential due process and give it to us. This is not right. I wish... Yield the gentleman uh, an additional 15 seconds to Gentlemen's recognized. I do not know what happened to our committee, but we still exist. Due process only kicks in at judiciary for the president. It does not kick in in the closed-door secret hearings of Adam Schiff. This is a travesty. No one should vote for this. This is a sad day. The curtain is coming down on this House because the majority has no idea about process and procedure. They're simply after a president. That was Congressman Doug Collins from Georgia. Uh, let's see, uh, Tom Cole from Oklahoma, who used to head the uh, Republican National Republican Congressional Committee uh, back when they were making big gains. He's out. He was there in Congress. I think, no, was he there during the Clinton impeachment? I think he was there during the Clinton impeachment. Today's resolution sets forth a process for impeaching the President of the United States. It's not a fair process. It's not an open process. It's not a transparent process. But instead, it's limited and a closed process with a preordained outcome. Impeachment of the president is one of the most consequential acts that the House of Representatives uh, can do. And it should only be done after the fullest consideration. And yet, over the last month, without a vote and with only the speakers say so, committees have been engaged in a closed impeachment inquiry on what amounts to nothing more than a partisan fishing expedition. At least today, the majority is admitting uh, what we know, have known all along, that the House was not following an appropriate process for impeachment. Uh, but I do not think the process we're setting forward in this resolution is a fair one either. Uh, it's not fair to the President of the United States, it's not fair to the House of Representatives, and it's not fair to the American people. That's Tom Cole from Oklahoma. One more here of the Republicans, so you can kind of get the <laughs> the styling of their messaging. This has everything to do with the Senate, just so you understand. This is uh, Steve Scalise, the Republican whip. Uh, unfortunately, we've seen since the day that President Trump was inaugurated, there have been some people that made it public that they wanted to impeach him. Not because they're high crimes and misdemeanors, which is the constitutional standard, but just because they don't agree with the results of the 2016 election.
Uh, that, Madam Speaker, is not why you impeach a president. There is precedent. This has only happened three times in the history of our country. Every time it not only started with a full vote of the House, but it also started with actual fairness. We're not getting that fairness today. When you look through this resolution in multiple places, it gives veto authority by the chair to literally reject any witness that's brought forward by the minority. So no rights for the minority unless the chair so designates. In fact, in this resolution, it allows the chair to veto even the ability for the president to have legal counsel in the room. If the chair chooses at his whim, they can literally kick out the president's legal counsel. This is unprecedented. It's not only unprecedented, this is Soviet-style rules. Maybe in the Soviet Union, you do things like this, where only you make the rules, where you reject the ability for They're the person you're accusing of the to even be in the room Union. to question what's going on. For anybody else to call witnesses, when only one person has the right to call witnesses. And as we saw just the other day, the chairman was literally directing the witness to not answer certain questions by the Republicans. What kind of fairness is that? Maybe you think it's fairness if you can run roughshod over somebody because you've got the votes, but that's not how impeachment was supposed to go. That was Steve Scalise, uh, the Republican whip, uh, blasting the process as well. Fairness in the process, uh, a due process in the process, is the, the big Republican talking point here. And remember, the conventional wisdom of the media was that the Democrats did not have to have a vote, uh, that Matt Getz and the Republicans who stormed the committee room were just a bunch of a mob of Republican white men and uh, he wasn't going to do any good. And then the Democrats said, all right, I guess we better have a vote. And it's because the message he mattered. That's why Pelosi is so frustrated about uh, the fairness argument, because it's not fair. I mean, Steve Scalise really highlighted it better than anybody, that the Republicans' counsel can't be there unless the chair allows. Uh, the Republicans can't call witnesses unless the chair allows. The, the chair can can uh, veto th- questions that are being asked. One of the things that the Republicans wanted to ask behind closed doors was about the whistleblower and who was the whistleblower. And uh, they wouldn't allow them to do that. They, they continued to block it. Here's Steve Scalise from yesterday on Schiff in the Hearing. Adam Schiff, among many things, has been trying to claim that this is a fair process process by saying that Republicans are allowed to ask questions. Now, he gets to choose all the witnesses and him and himself only, which means it's not a fair process on the face. But even his claim now that Republicans can ask questions has been undermined because now he's directing witnesses not to answer questions that he doesn't want the witness to answer if they're asked by Republicans. He's not cut off one Democrat. He's not interrupted one Democrat and told a witness not to answer Democrat members' questions. But today he started telling witnesses, the witness, not to answer questions by certain Republicans. Uh, that, that reeks, and by the way, if you want to talk about a Soviet-style process, again, that might be what they do in the Soviet Union, not in the United States of America. We can't stand for this. The American people are being denied equal justice. Yeah, they are. And the questions that the Republicans are getting to, just so you understand, there is a growing suspicion that the whistleblower turned out to be a very partisan activist from the Obama administration who had helped Susan Rice craft anti-Trump talking points after the election. 
We don't know that that is the whistleblower. This person is being named uh, by some individuals, um, but we're not sure. And the Republicans are trying to find out the identity. The fact that the Democrats are keeping him uh, his name out of it and preventing Republicans from being able to ask questions about coordination with Adam Schiff ahead of time uh, is problematic for the Democrats at this point, and they probably need to get the whistleblower out there. Now, I am uh, th- there is this going out now from it looks like um, what is the source here is the uh, NBC News. Haley Jackson, White House aides think four to five Democrats could cross party lines in the vote. One staffer says the administration has been working nonstop to shore up Republican support. Uh, the president is in residence most of the morning. Uh, networks intend to break in. Uh, just so you know, all of the major networks, CBS, NBC, um, ABC, Fox News, uh, they intend to break in when the vote happens uh, for impeachment. They're making a very big deal out of this. The voting is right now underway, and there are two Democratic defectors, and there are zero Republican defectors right now happening with this vote uh, on impeachment as we move forward. Let's go on to commercial break. We will come back. The voting for impeachment. The House debate is all underway. We will cover it right here on The Eric Erickson Show. The House of Representatives voting right now on the matter of impeachment. The House uh, moves on to officially vote on the Democrats' impeachment resolution. This is C-SPAN listening. Codifies and officially infirms the investigation into whether there is sufficient evidence that President Trump committed impeachable offenses. Among the things that this resolution does, it directs the committees to continue their investigations. It authorizes public hearings. It details the minority party, the Republican rights during this process, and allows the participation of President Trump. In that previous vote, that uh, that previous question vote, the vote 231 to 196 reports our Capitol Hill producer Craig Kaplan on a near party line vote. Two Democrats voted no against that, with all Republicans voting against it as well. Justin Amash, independent of Michigan, voted yes with all of the other Democrats. This is a five-minute vote. That's C-SPAN, House Resolution 660, to begin the formal process of impeaching the President of the United States. Uh, The votes are being cast right now. Two Democrats are voting against it. Uh, All of the Republicans are voting against it. Justin Amash, the former Republican, now independent, is voting for it. Uh, No Republicans are voting for the impeachment inquiry and the rules to to how to publicly proceed. This is the final vote. We are listening to this live. I'm, I'm going to keep the sound from the floor of the House of Representatives on as I'm talking. Uh, this is very interesting development here with some of these Republicans opposed. Some thought that uh, Congressman Peterson may be voting against it or uh, voting for it. He's not. Republicans, all the Republicans are voting against it, including the Republicans who are leaving the House. There had been some speculation that there would be some Republicans, including Will Hurd of Texas, who might join the Democrats in this on their way out the door. It doesn't appear that any of the Republicans are going to be joining the Democrats on this issue. Republicans uh, making the big case that there's a fairness issue at play here, a fairness issue. 
that because the Democrats are allowing the chair of the Judiciary Committee to waive due process and not allow the Republican president to have counsel in the room, that somehow or another this is an unfair process. And frankly, they're right. Uh, the Clinton and the Nixon impeachment processes both allowed the president's counsel to be in the room at the end, the entire decision. Um, they're not going to do that. Additionally, they're going to be able to restrict the chair is the questions asked by the Republicans. They do not want the whistleblower's identity to be named. They do not want questions allowed as to who is the whistleblower because they don't believe that it is relevant now that they have firsthand witnesses. Republicans say it's highly relevant, and there we have it. Uh, the vote is now 219, meaning there is a majority now in favor of the resolution. Here at 11.26 a.m. on Halloween, the Democrats have just crossed the majority line on House Resolution 660. The vote total continues to go up. Uh, Democrats now rushing at the end, seeing that they've crossed 218. They're all coming out in favor of it. Uh, right now, 18 members of the House of Representatives are still holding out to see how things go. Republicans very much against this resolution, and it's a bipartisan opposition. They've got two Democrats who have refused to vote for the, the resolution, who have voted against it. Uh, the only Republican to support them is Justin Amish, who left the Republican Party after he was thrown out of the House Freedom Caucus. He moved over into the independent category, says he's going to run again in Michigan. Democrats and Republicans both going to challenge him in his Michigan congressional district. Libertarians trying to woo Justin Amish to run against the president as a libertarian. He thus far has not precluded doing that, and this vote signals he may want to do something like that. Uh, the odds are he cannot win in this district, having voted for impeachment with the Democrats being the only right of center person in the House of Representatives to support it. Uh, the vote continues here for another few seconds. Nancy Pelosi is in the chair as Speaker of the House, consulting with the House parliamentarian as this vote comes down to the last 10 seconds. There are only seven members of the House of Representatives who have not yet voted on this uh, resolution. We have uh, 229 Democrats in favor, 230 now total votes in favor of impeachment, 196, six people still not voting. Typically, these are the leaders of the parties wait until the very end uh, to see how things go by habit, uh, because if there is a motion to reconsider, it's got to be someone in the majority. So the Republicans and the Democrats, oftentimes you'll see a Republican leader vote with the Democrats only to be able to make a motion to reconsider, which will go down in flames here, given the, the uh, total. It looks like we will have, with one vote outstanding, we will have a vote of 233 for impeaching the President of the United States, and we will have 199 votes against impeaching the President of the United States. The time to vote has lapsed, but they're waiting to get these four additional individuals here uh, into the floor of the House of Representatives. You're listening to the sound of the House of Representatives, the members of Congress waiting around for Nancy Pelosi to pound the gavel to close out the vote, which will be happening any moment. She's now got her hand on the gavel and she's ready to close out this vote. They're just waiting for these four people. Uh, she's sending out the Sergeant of Arms. You can see she's directed the Sergeant of Arms to go find 
find the four members of Congress who have not voted. We're going to head to a commercial break as this thing wraps up in the House of Representatives. Uh, and the impeachment of the president is on. The Democrats just having voted for it. Uh, Pelosi about to pound the gavel and close out the vote, uh, giving members one more minute to do so. We'll be back here. Eric Erickson on The Eric Erickson Show. This historic day, Democrats voting to impeach the president of the United States. The House of Representatives has voted to begin a formal impeachment process of the president, 232 votes to 196 votes, voting on the rules uh, for how they will proceed. Two Democrats voted against it, so bipartisan opposition (laughs) to impeaching the president. Uh, Congressman Van Drew of New Jersey, Congressman Colin Petersons of Minnesota, both Democrats uh, voted against it. They both live in uh, Republican-leaning areas that went for Donald Trump. Looks like they want to run for re-election. Uh, Justin Amish, a Republican turned Demo- uh, turned independent, voted with the Democrats to impeach. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what he does for his political future now. He's been rather outraged by the president's behavior. Uh, it, it's actually, a, it is a historic day. The Democrats having voted to do this, it will be more historic if they get to articles of impeachment. And who knows where the path will lead when they get to that point. Uh, And and I say that very intentionally because we don't know what comes up and we don't know the way this changes. Let's say the Republicans are right. And it is this partisan Democratic hack holdover from the Obama administration. Yeah, I'll tell you what would be wild. What if John Durham, the Connecticut U.S. attorney who's investigating the Russia stuff, actually winds up indicting the the somebody and it turns out that guy's the whistleblower? That would be a new twist here. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, honestly, it would. It, this would be an, an interesting, interesting twist to see that happen. Uh, we, we don't know where it's going to go. Nancy Pelosi pounded the gavel a, a short time ago on the impeachment matter. Now, it's very important that we understand what was actually voted on. This was not a vote to actually begin an impeachment process. The Democrats have argued that they did not need a vote to begin that. Uh, this is this is very, 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 um, you got to understand this. And I can't uh, emphasize this enough. The, how, the Constitution says that the House handles all impeachments. The Senate votes to convict, but the House initiates all impeachments. The Constitution also says that the House and the Senate write their own rules. And by precedent in the House, they don't have to have a formal vote. Now, uh, by precedent in the House in the modern era, they have always uh, voted to begin an impeachment inquiry. And the Democrats violated that process this time by not voting to hold a formal inquiry Um, to begin a formal process. What they voted on today were the rules of the formal process. The Democrats decided that they were going to go back to old school. Old school process in the House of Representatives before the Nixon era was you just began an impeachment inquiry. You you didn't take a formal vote. You just started it. Uh, A committee could investigate something that led them to think there was an impeachment and it would turn into an impeachment hearing. And that's what the Democrats did here. Uh, And that's why Republicans got them on the due process issue and on the process of impeachment issue, because the Democrats uh, violated modern precedent 
And it did seem somewhat odd that they were doing it all behind closed doors. You don't want to impeach the president behind closed doors. In fact, at the White House last night, they had a Halloween party. It was a witch hunt party. That's right. They had the witch hunt party at the at the White House for Halloween last night. Uh, again, highlighting the absurdity of the Democrats keeping all of this behind closed doors and not allowing the Republicans to ask questions. The whistleblower is going to have to come forward now. I mean, he's just got to to have it. it, it listen, I, I agree. I I fundamentally agree on the basics that. You don't need the whistleblower when you've got firsthand accounts of firsthand people who have firsthand information, who are firsthand eyewitnesses, and they all come forward. You don't need the whistleblower. But you do need the whistleblower because none of this would have gotten to this point but for the whistleblower. And the um, inspector general said the whistleblower had his own firsthand information. And if that's the case, then you need to have the whistleblower. The Republicans need to be able to see the whistleblower. I I am convinced uh, that the fairness of the process dictates that the person who started all of this should have to come forward. We're, We're not in a deep throat, whitewater or Watergate moment. Uh, we need to be able to see this person and the process, and we need to be able to see this person and what they said, uh, what their inquiries were, and how it all got started, and how they collaborated with Adam Schiff, and how they collaborated with Adam Schiff's staff, and see just how political this was. And the Democrats don't want it because they're afraid this could completely undermine their impeachment. And in so undermining their impeachment, it very well is a situation where the Republicans in the Senate will have the opportunity to say, wait a second, this really was the partisan witch hunt that the president said it was. The whistleblower needs to come forward. He needs to be vetted. Now, there isn't a whole lot more we need to say about this. Uh, I I do want to talk about Lawrence Van Dyke, because while the Senate is in the process of trying to destroy the president, or while the the House is, the Senate is in the process of trying to destroy one of his nominees, uh, Lawrence Van Dyke. Lawrence Van Dyke is a highly competent, well-respected jurist uh, who served as Solicitor General of Nevada and Montana. In fact, he ran for the Montana Supreme Court and the American Bar Association has decided that he is completely unqualified to be president or to be a uh, circuit judge on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, the most liberal circuit in the nation. When the ABA decides on whether someone is competent or incompetent, qualified or unqualified, they go out to lawyers and they pick a lawyer to review the record of the individual. They picked a lawyer to enter to review Lawrence Van Dyke's record as solicitor general in Nevada and Montana to see if Lawrence Van Dyke was qualified. In so doing, they pick someone who is an opponent of his. Van Dyke ran for the Supreme Court in Montana and the person who reviewed him for the American Bar Association donated to the opposition. In fact, the person who reviewed Lawrence Van Dyke uh, has donated to a lot of Democratic candidates and never donated to Republican candidates. It seems to be a partisan setup. They attacked Lawrence Van Dyke 
on gay rights and said essentially he was a homophobic bigot who could not serve on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And uh, Lawrence Van Dyke was asked about this yesterday and began to break down while testifying on this issue. Did you say that you wouldn't be fair to members of the LGBT community? Sorry. No, I did not say that. I do not believe that. It is a fundamental belief of mine that all people are created in the image of God. They should all be treated with dignity and respect. Senator. He was upset. He was weeping. And you know how the Washington Post reported this? Judicial nominee begins to cry over ABA labeling him disqualified or unqualified. That's how the Washington Post, the Washington Post that called uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi an austere religious cleric, said that Lawrence Van Dyke cried in the Senate because the ABA listed him as unqualified. That's not what happened there at all. Now, of course, the, um, the the Washington Post is the news outlet that said that Kermit Gosnell was a local crime story when he was running the abortion mill where children were being flushed in toilets, literally uh, being drowned and delivered in toilets. Um, that that was local crime story in Philadelphia, not worth the time of the of the New York Times or of the Washington Post to cover it. Uh, they, they their headline for Lawrence Van Dyke is that he cried because the ABA listed him as disqualified. That's not why he lied at all. It's because the ABA lied about his record and said he was a homophobic bigot who would not treat gay people fairly on the stand uh, because he was a, a hyper-partisan fundamentalist Christian. I mean, he was attacked for his faith that by being a Christian, he could not be fair. Now, Maisie Hirono is the idiot from Hawaii who's on the, the Senate Judiciary Committee, and she does the Democrats no favors. And you just you got to play this to understand this is one of the Democrats who will vote on Van Dyke. You also testified that uh, you would look to the Constitution and what, uh, what was meant in the Constitution at the time that it took effect, with enactment, ratification, whatever. This was back in 1789, when blacks couldn't vote and women couldn't vote. So if the Constitution had not been amended to let women and blacks vote, you would interpret the Constitution as not allowing these groups to vote? Senator, the, the Constitution has been amended. I'm thankful. No, been but amended, excuse but. me. If the Constitution had not been amended, and you're applying the Constitution as it was enacted, 1789, That's if not the Constitution what he's doing. had not been amended to allow women and blacks to vote. By originalism, you would have to interpret the Constitution as not allowing these groups to vote. Isn't that right, Senator? I believe that that. We, live, we have a system of separation of powers. I believe that my job as a judge is to apply the law, not to make the policy decisions. And I, 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 um, I'm very thankful so, that the Constitution was amended. I think that was the right process to do. Yes, with. but you know what? The, the point I'm making, of course, uh, which uh, uh, you're trying to get around, is that originalism means that you would interpret the Constitution at the time of its enactment, and, in it, and you would not allow women and blacks to vote because that was not in the constitution when it was ratified in 1789. Let's move on. <laughs> no, this woman is not smart. Uh, oh, she thinks she's playing gotcha. Uh, he, originalism means that you interpret the constitution as the provisions meant when they were originally enacted. 
The 14th Amendment was not enacted in the 1700s. It was enacted after the Civil War. And so you would interpret the 14th Amendment not by the way people in the 1700s would interpret it, but by the way the people who wrote it would interpret it in the same way. You interpret the 22nd, the 23rd, the 24th, the 25th, 26th, 27th Amendments in the way that the uh, people in Congress interpreted them at that time. The fact that she doesn't get that, that, that she's trying to attack this man uh, claiming that he would support slavery and keeping women from voting is absurd. That's not what originalism means. You interpret the First Amendment the way that the founders would interpret it. But you would interpret the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments the way that the people at that time would interpret it. You interpret the 19th Amendment on women's suffrage the way that people would have interpreted in uh, the, the 19, early 1900s when they passed it. I mean, this this is just uh, a this is bizarre behavior from the Democrats on the Judiciary Committee, and it really does go to show just how unreasonable the Democrats are being with all of these nominees. Now, I, I got to hang on a second. There's an article Philip texted me this morning. I got to find where is this? Um article this is one of the most bizarre things i have seen uh genuinely this is absurd the writer um dahlia uh, what is it uh, dahlia lithwick or whatever at slate actually um or maybe put it in slack she it, it's been a year since brett kavanaugh was confirmed and she is the progressive supreme court writer at slate dahlia lithwick this is the headline. This We're a year from the break. Can you believe where this goes back to events matter? We're a year from the Kavanaugh confirmation now. Why I haven't gone back to SCOTUS since Kavanaugh. Subtitle, some things are not worth getting over. It's been just over a year since I sat in the hearing room watching the final act of Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing. I listened from the back as Christine Blasey Ford and then Judge Kavanaugh each faced the Senate Judiciary Committee to tell irreconcilable versions of what happened in the summer of 1982 when there's never been evidence that they ever actually met each other, but that's beside the point. The morning was spent as I'd anticipated, all of us listening, some clearly in agony to Ford's account, and then Kavanaugh came in and started screaming. The reporters at the tables around me took him in with blank shock, mindlessly typing the words he was yelling. The enduring memory a year later is that my 15-year-old son texted he was watching it in school to ask if I was perfectly safe in the Senate chamber. He was afraid for the judge's mental health and my physical health. I had to patiently explain that I was in no physical danger of any kind, that there were dozens of people in the room, and that I was at the very back with the phalanx of reporters, and my son's visceral fears don't really matter in one sense because the fact that I was forced to explain to him that the man shouting about conspiracies and pledging revenge of his distractors would sit on the court for many decades and in that one sense none of us as women were ever going to be perfectly safe again. None of us as women were ever going to be perfectly safe again. I, I You know, I remember that day. Ah, I had to cover it. And I would tell you that if Judge Kavanaugh came in and sat there after hearing what he had heard and was cool, calm, collected, and dispassionate, today, Dahlia Lithwick would be writing about how 
He was sociopathic sitting there. A woman had accused him of rape. And he was cool, calm, and collected the way a sociopath would be. He showed no emotion. Clearly, there's something wrong with this man because a man who was falsely accused of rape would be outraged. He would pound the table and yell angrily about the people out to get him. He would be incensed and enraged, but not Brett Kavanaugh. Brett Kavanaugh, like the sociopathic serial rapist he probably is, sat there calm and collected his thoughts and tried to do his best to sound reasonable while deep down he probably raged like the monsters. There was no winning for Brett Kavanaugh in this. He sat down angry on the verge of tears that people were accusing him of raping someone who he did not know, he had never met, and there were no witnesses. All of the witnesses that Christine Blasey Ford said she had, none of them remembered the incident. There has never been evidence that they were tied together, and he was outraged and indignant. He couldn't have won. I'm, I'm not kidding you. I firmly, fully believe that if he was there and was cool, calm, collected, and dispassionate and never raised his voice to address this stuff, the Democrats would have attacked him for being a quiet sociopath. Instead, he came in and he was outraged and incensed. Someone had accused him of rape falsely, and he was indignant at the media trial. He was indignant at the fact that he couldn't stand outside and feed the homeless as he had always done because people were coming up to him yelling and calling him a rapist. He was incensed. His life was ruined by Democrats who wanted to keep him off the court. And now, oh, women are going to be scared forever now. I can't go to this room where that monster is there. She would feel that way one way or the other. There's no winning for Brett Kavanaugh. This speaks worse of her than him. And the fact that there are a lot of liberals out there who feel the exact same way, that somehow their lives are over because of Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court, who, by the way, Ruth Bader Ginsburg thinks highly of. Elena Kagan has spoken highly of. This is farcical nonsense, and that's what's happening to Lawrence Van Dyke in the Senate right now. They know he is competent. He's qualified. He's a skillful litigator. He's been a great jurist. He will be great on the court, but they can't let him do it. They can't afford to have the Ninth Circuit drift to the right. And they're doing everything they can to destroy him. It's what the left does these days. They can't stop them, so they try to make it as painful as possible for all of them, hoping that some of the good ones will say, I don't want this in my life. Why would I want to be considered? That's what they're trying to do here. This is a willful tactic of the left to try to destroy people's character because they want to keep them off the bench. But more importantly, they want to keep others from even thinking they want to be considered because they would be destroyed. The level of virtue signaling out there over Twitter is insane. So Twitter, is, you know, we work, we work is the is the subletting business Ponzi scheme that collapsed. Uh, and uh, Twitter runs as we woke. They are hyper progressive. They target conservatives routinely. And Jack Dorsey, their CEO, has come out and said, we're not going to let any political ads on Twitter. And the media is rushing out to condemn Facebook for not doing the same. And this is all a partisan hit on Facebook. You do need to understand that the media, the left, the tech press have decided that Facebook is not woke enough, that Facebook is not on their side enough, that uh, it is, oh, Lord, Hillary Clinton's now coming out saying D.C. should have statehood because they won the World Series. What an idiot. Anyway, uh, <laughs> um, they're 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 
out to get Facebook because Republicans are doing well. They're targeting Ben Shapiro's Daily Wire and his success on Facebook. They're targeting Facebook in general. And, you know, Facebook was fine. The left loved Facebook. Barack Obama was doing great on Facebook, and they were overflowing with effusive praise for Facebook because the Democrats were doing so well on Facebook. But then Donald Trump came along in 2016 and made Facebook competitive for conservatives. And in fact, some of the biggest sites that operate off Facebook are conservative sites like Ben Shapiro's The Daily Wire. And now the left is outraged. They want The Daily Wire banned from Facebook. They're they're running progressive activists or supposedly doing exposés on how uh, Daily Wire is being protected by Facebook. They're uh, blasting Facebook for allowing the president to run ads on Facebook that CNN, a news organization, won't run on CNN. They want Facebook to censor conservatives. That's the issue. They don't like the fact that Facebook allows conservatives on the site. A buddy of mine said actually what's going on here is they thought that uh, that Facebook was left-leaning, and they're trying to bully them to get them back in line, and that's their antagonism. I actually don't think that's it. I, I would have, except I've been reading more and more that the um, that the Democrats have increasingly decided that Mark Zuckerberg is too libertarian for them, so he's become the enemy. And because he's become the enemy... Uh, that they um, they need to destroy Facebook now. They need to destroy Mark Zuckerberg. They've decided that Facebook was useful when Facebook was run by woke employees and that Zuckerberg is exercising management over Facebook on a day-to-day basis in a way they presume he used to not, that it's now bad and it must be destroyed. Anything that stands in the way of the left capturing control of our democracy is bad. They can't play by the rules. They've got to punish and silence and change the rules and delegitimize anything that stands in their way to get back into power. They just don't like being out of power, and that's going to come back to haunt them.